All right, Alexander, let's do an update as to what is happening in Ukraine. So what is happening in Ukraine? Um, well, political article. Well, okay, okay. We've got to talk about the political article, which, you know, there's going to be a lot to say about that. And um, we also have the situation on the ground and, of course, Bakhmut and the... What was it that, that happened a couple of days ago, the rumor that Ukraine crossed over the, the river in Kherson, but that has been uh, debunked already. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else going on on the ground outside of of, of the fighting in, in Bakhmut. A drone strikes in Moscow, yeah. or, or attempted, attempt, yes. attempted drone strikes yes. in Moscow yes. and attempted drone strikes in Sevastopol yes. as well. Yes, and the, it's the ones in Sevastopol that were the most important. I should say that apparently the weather in Ukraine has been very bad, lots of rain, lots of mud. That makes big movements of, you know, large forces more difficult than they would be. Um, and it's being... Yeah, but Sirsky you know, says that Putin is controlling the weather. Of course he is. Absolutely. We know that. He's got a climate <laughs> weapon. He's actually said that, you know, yeah. you know, uh, um, yeah, I, I, know. I should make That's it clear to our viewers. Uh, yeah. Alex, act, Alex not a joke. actually, he's not a joke. He, he has that the commander of Ukraine's ground forces has actually said that Putin has a climate weapon that enables him to control the weather. And that's why he's slowing down the offensive, which begs the question of what he's going to do with this weapon in the summer. Will he turn uh, uh, Ukraine into a sort of ice or whatever it is? I don't know. But that, that, is, that is exactly what the, Ukrainians, that the Ukrainian general who's in charge of all of this is saying. So it's incredible. It's incredible, but it's true. But anyway, there is a lot. Of, there is bad weather. The Ukrainians have been saying that this is the reason why they haven't carried out their offensive. And the latest report suggests that the offensive, which was supposed to start on the 30th of May, it's now been postponed to the second part of May. And there's even some suggestions that it may be happening in June. Let's talk about the offensive in a moment. Now, at the moment, difficult weather It's making rapid advances harder but there are advances and for the moment they're entirely by the russians now in bakhmut it seems confirmed that the wagner troops have cut the road that leads into bakhmut from the west there's, there's the main road they, they apparently occupy around 500 meters of this road there's a lot of fighting going on but the road is un unusable so ukraine's only ability to send men and supplies but into and out of bakhmut is across these country lanes these boggy fields very dangerous to do very difficult to do and prigozhin who is the head of the wagner group he says that the area that um, Ukraine still controls in Bakhmut is one kilometer by two kilometers. In other words, it's very small. So, you know, Bakhmut, it's almost at an end. And we've been saying this for a while. It's clearly been a bitterly fought battle. Ukraine did everything it could, it threw everything it had to try to hold on to Bakhmut. Many people, myself, ourselves, think that it overinvested in holding on to Bakhmut. But clearly, now we are at the end game of the end game. It's very difficult to see how Ukraine can hold on to Bakhmut for much longer. And there's also some reports of Russian advances in other places. So 
There were reports yesterday that the Russians have made some progress around Avdeevka, which is this city to the south of Bakhmut, which is opposite Donetsk, and it's the area where you, which Ukraine uses, the place where from where Ukraine shells um, Donetsk city. It's important for the Russians to capture this place for political reasons as much as any others. And there's also a lot of fighting apparently going on in a forest in the north of the Donbass, which the Russians are gradually clearing. And there's again been Ukrainian counterattacks there, but the Russians say that they've all failed. So there's fighting going on, but it's slow grinding stuff. And the biggest battle still remains Bakhmut and no doubt will continue to be that way until Bakhmut is finally captured, which cannot possibly be long now. So that's that's what's going on on the battlefronts. Now, you mentioned the non-story, because it was one. It's picked up by the Institute for the Study of War. The Guardian, incredibly, is still running with it, even after Ukrainian officials themselves have denied it, that the Ukrainians have managed to achieve some kind of bridgehead on the east bank of the deeper river in Kherson region. Now, you know, I'm sure you've been reading the same things as I've been reading. For weeks, for months, there have been stories about, you know, Russians sending reconnaissance groups across the Dnieper into western Kherson region. The Ukrainians sending reconnaissance people across the river into eastern Kherson region. The reconnaissance troops of each side occupying or trying to occupy various islands in the Dnieper. This has been an ongoing thing. These are small groups of men on boats crossing the Dnieper backwards and forwards. There was a bizarre story about a week ago that one Russian group operating in the west western part of the Dnieper captured a leopard tooth tank and sank it in a bog, which is a story which I didn't believe. And from time to time, as I said, the Ukrainians crossed the Dnieper themselves and they've they occupy the odd abandoned cottage, specifically in marshy areas. The Russians find out that they're there. The Russian artillery mortars immediately attack. The Ukrainians pull out and go back across the Dnieper. And this has been going on for, for ages. But presumably, because things are not going well on the battlefronts and the Ukrainians are not achieving any big advances, We've had this story, which the Ukrainians themselves have denied, that Ukraine has actually established some sort of permanent presence across the Dnieper River. It isn't true. As you rightly said, it's been debunked. The way in which some elements of the Western media, not, it should be said, you know, most of the media in the West, but some of the elements of the Western media have run with this story, is frankly desperate. It's just nothing more than sporadic commando raids that have achieved nothing. Okay. Uh, do you want to say anything about the, the drone strikes? Whether oh, yeah, that, 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 that is important. Pole, no, I'm sorry. That is, that is important. So we, now the, we, the Ukrainians have been trying to launch drone strikes and missile strikes deep into Russia for some time. And if you remember, if you go back to the autumn, when they managed to launch missile strikes or drone strikes against the Engels Air Base and were sending drones close to Moscow, it looked for a time as if the Russians had 
a serious problem on their hands. But what's happened is that gradually it looks as if the Russian air defences have... I'm not going to say they've got entirely on top of the problem because it's, there's always a, a possibility that something will get through. But these drone attacks deep into Russia, using smaller and smaller drones, they're finding it more difficult to penetrate or reach all the way through, all the way to Moscow. And it's increasingly clear that these attacks are pinprick attacks, and it's a long time since they've achieved anything. So all of these drones, they've, the Russians have either intercepted or shot down, or the drones themselves ran out of um, power. And on one occasion, apparently, they crashed down to earth on that basis without causing any damage. So these drone attacks on you know, main Russia, on Moscow, have not succeeded, except in one respect which is that they have caused the Russians to call off the march of the immortal regiment. This is the large number of people, the hundreds of thousands of people who turn out on the 9th of May with uh, pictures of their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers who fought in the Second World War. It's a big event in Russia. But on this occasion, the authorities in Moscow have called it off Obviously, they're afraid that Ukraine might be able to launch some kind of a strike against these, this march, and it looks like a precaution. There's a report, by the way, circulating that the United States has told Ukraine not to launch strikes against Moscow and that the Ukrainians are complying with it. I think the reason it isn't happening is because their capability to do it has become very limited indeed. And there was a report that the factory, the workshop, where these big Soviet-era jet-powered reconnaissance drones were being converted into cruise missiles, that that factory has been destroyed as a result of Russian missile strikes and that they just can't produce these drones anymore in that kind of way. And anyway, their effectiveness appears to have reduced. Much more serious was this big drone strike on Crimea. And it was both air-launched drones and seaborne drones. Now, again, if you take your mind back to the summer, last summer, the Ukrainians started to launch drone and missile strikes on Crimea around that time. And you remember there was a very successful drone attack on a Russian airbase in Crimea at a place called Saki. And that did a lot of damage. A lot of aircraft were damaged in that strike. But subsequently, Russian air defences have got denser. The Russians have developed, clearly, electronic warfare systems. And none of these latest, none of the, none of the Ukrainian drones in this latest strike seem to have managed to get through. So... What we again see is the Ukrainians continuing to launch these sort of strikes, but they're not able to get through the Russian defences. And very lastly, the Russians say that Ukraine deployed a long-range missile system that it's developed called the Grom-2. This is a ballistic missile 
which was developed by Ukraine um, with funding from a Middle East country in the late, about 2018. And they seen a completed development of it and they tried to launch, they tried to launch two of these missiles against uh, Crimea from the area of Zaporozhye region. It's a little bit like the Attackums missile in some ways. But on both occasions, the Russians say that they were able to shoot this missile down and that, again, the Ukrainians are not getting through. So it seems as if these missile strikes on Crimea and drone strikes, including the seaborne drones against Sevastopol, that all of these attacks are failing. Yeah. Why are they trying to hit Crimea? Well, right now, is this part of a preparation for the big for the big spring offensive, or do you think this is more of trying to take away the attention from Bakhmut? It's both. It clearly is both. I mean, I, I, these strikes, whatever they were intended to achieve, are not achieving anything any longer. Um, back in the day, you know, a couple of months ago, you could argue that these strikes were intended to give Ukraine information about the nature of. Russian air defences and seaborne defences in Crimea. I think we're long past the point now where that kind of explanation makes any sort of sense. I mean, I think that whatever information they needed to get that way, they've now got, and all the information they're getting instead now is that these air defences have become extremely strong indeed, and that's all that they can, all that they know. So I think that they're doing that partly because they hope that something will get through. And that will give Ukraine a media win when Ukraine is, frankly, not doing well on the battlefields. But I think also it is intended to some extent to provide a kind of curtain raiser for the spring offensive, where the idea is you capture territory, bring your missile launchers closer to Crimea, start raining missiles down on Crimea, and that way, you know, you force the Russians to pull out of Crimea, something along, something along those lines. Now, that can only work if the air defences and the missile defences in Crimea can't intercept these missiles. And it could be that Ukraine is trying to put on some kind of demonstration to show to the West, well, look, if you let us get close to Crimea, we can do it. But in fact, it seems to me that what it's doing, it's the opposite. It's actually showing that the defences, the air defences in Crimea are now so sophisticated that relatively few missiles, and currently no missiles at all, or drones, are able to get through. It's so insane that, uh, that Ukraine and the collective West has these narratives of, you know, if we're, we're going to get to the borders of Crimea and we're going to bring along our, our missile systems and we're just going to rain missiles down to Crimea... The Russian military is just going to collapse and they're just going to leave uh, Crimea and we're just going to walk right on. And it's it's incredible when they put out these narratives, they, they put them out there without considering that they're fighting an opponent. They make it seem like Russia is just non-existent. You know, yeah. it's just it's not going to do anything. It's not going to to launch its own counteroffensive. It's not going to to defend itself. It's not going to rain missiles down on on cities in, in Ukraine or, or, or anything like that in retaliation. I mean, it just makes it seem like Russia is just 
oh, you know, they're, they're launching 510 missiles at Crimea, the war is over, we're, we're done, we're out of here. I mean, that, the, the way they construct these narratives, it's, it's, it's like there's only one side yes. fighting this, this conflict. And the Russian side is just kind of very, very passive, hanging out in some field, drinking vodka and, and just, you know, waiting for Ukraine to just walk right on into Crimea. And, and I guess this leads me into the political article with the title... Biden fears, Biden te Biden's team fears the aftermath of a failed Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yes, <laughs> the first, the, first, the yeah. first time, by the way, that I've seen an article in the Western media actually talk about a failed counteroffensive. Up to this point, they always assume that the counteroffensive is going to succeed. The only question is how big the success is going to be. Are they going to get all the way to the Sea of Azov, retaking Mariupol and Melitopol and all those places, or are they only going to capture around 30 kilometres of territory? I mean, this, the, the headline in this, in this article, not so much the article itself, but the headline in the article appears to admit the possibility of complete failure. <laughs> That's quite an admission, actually. And, well, it, it, it confirms the point we've been making for some time now, that there's clearly a split. You have on the one side the neocons, who will not accept anything less than an offensive. They insist on one. They take it as absolutely read that the offensive is going to succeed, I had there was an article by Ben Hodges, General Ben Hodges, you know, one of the one of this particular team, who said, you know, the offensive is going to be easy. He actually said that. He actually said in that article in the Daily Telegraph, it's easy to achieve this, to, to, to achieve all these objectives. The Russians have given up hope. They're not prepared to defend Crimea anymore. They're open to panic. After all, the holiday makers left Crimea when the Missiles started to fall, so you mustn't expect the Russian army to put up much of a fight. So they insisting that this offensive go on. And on the other hand, you have the other side, the military, some of the people in the intelligence world. They're coming back and they're saying, look, this isn't, this isn't going to work. The Russians are dug in. They built up these very heavy fortified lines. There's hundreds of thousands of them. Um, they're fully prepared to fight. Putin is not going to give in. There's not going to be a political crisis in Moscow. This is looking like a debacle. By the way, New York Times has given us for the first time a number on the, of, on the size of the force with which Ukraine is going to go on the offensive eventually, which is 48,000. It says there's 12 brigades of 4,000 men each, 48,000 men. And, you know, we're talking about a Russian force aggregate number, around half a million. So it doesn't, you know, the odds don't look good. Obviously, you concentrate this 48,000 man grouping in one place. But as you correctly said, you know, the Russians aren't going to just sit there twiddling their thumbs, waiting for Ukraine to break through. They're not going to panic. They're not going to break. When have the Russians ever panicked at any point in this war up to now? So this is wishful thinking. But the neocons will allow 
for nothing else. And the Politico article says that some people in the Biden team are becoming worried because they now realise that if the offensive fails, they will be blamed. They will be blamed by the realists who said you didn't listen to our advice. And they will be blamed by Ben Hodges and the neocons and the Newlands and the others like that who will say you didn't do enough. You didn't give Ukraine the F-16s and the attackers missiles and all the other weapons that, you, you know, the 1000 Abrams tanks and all those things that it needed in order to succeed. So they're beginning to become scared. And we have had similar articles in the New York Times now. And by the way, also in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, they're afraid that that if this counteroffensive fails, then they're basically saying in this article that it's going to fail. That's the way I read it. If this fails, then the neocons on the one side, they're going to be pissed off at Biden and they're going to blame the fact that Biden didn't give all these weapons. On the other side, it's the realists who are going to say, you see, we told you this was a crazy plan. And they're also afraid that uh, they're going to, to get it from the Europeans as well. And the Europeans are going to say, all right, we're out of here. Elensky um, is not going to gain any territory. He's not going to beat the Russians. We've destroyed our economy. We've destroyed our energy security. We've blown up uh, pipelines. It's time to, to call this quits. They're afraid that the Europeans are going to say it's, it's rapprochement time with Russia. And so the Biden White House is, is trying to figure out how do we get out of this mess? And, and you said Politico is doing damage control. They're doing damage control for the Biden White House. The New York Times is running damage control. You, you, you start uh, hearing for the first time from uh, the mainstream media numbers of casualties on the Ukrainian side. Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Politico in this article, they're finally, they're finally putting the number of 100,000. Three, four months ago, everyone had the impression that zero Ukrainian soldiers were dying. They refused to put a number. They refused. 300,000 Russian soldiers, they'd say. 500,000 Russian soldiers. But Ukraine? Oh, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe one or two. Now they're putting a number. All of these publications are now putting a number. And the number across the board is the same. And finally, uh, Alexander, one paragraph which stood out to me from this article says... Ukraine has hoped, has hoped to sever Russia's land bridge to Crimea, and U.S. officials are now skeptical that will happen, according to two administration officials familiar with the assessment. But there, there are still hopes in the Pentagon that Ukraine will hamper Russia's supply lines there, even if a total victory over Russia's newly fortified troops ends up too difficult to achieve. Hope and hope. How many yes. times have we said that... Behind all of the all of the rhetoric and talk and and everything that Alensky's been saying and the collective West and the Pentagon and Austin and Blinken, the strategy is the hope strategy. They're hoping. They're hoping something, just something happened. Something, some some Yerasimov stabbing Putin in the back, some some Russian military leaving Crimea, something to happen. It's the hope strategy. And in this article, they flat out admit it. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. I mean, I, I, I have nothing much to add to any of the points that you've been making, because it is. It's now exposed that there isn't any real plan B. Um, they can't sustain this war 
for much longer anyway. And this is, by the way, implicit in all of these articles. The Politico article, the New York Times article, the uh, Wall Street Journal article. There's an article today in the Financial Times detailing the collapse of the EU's project of supplying Ukraine with a million shells. They were going to supply Ukraine with a million shells. They're going to buy all these shells from all of these countries, pile them all together, ship them off to Ukraine. That would enable Ukraine to stabilise the situation on the battlefield. It would achieve, if not a parity with the Russians in artillery, at least a significant presence. There aren't that many shells in Europe. The, the factories can't produce the shells. They've been going around cap in hand to other countries to try to get the shells. They can't get the shells. And if you read the Financial Times article carefully, obviously, it's blaming the French, but you can also sense huge recriminations going on. Because that project, does it just can't be done. Other articles, I think it was the Wall Street Journal article, actually said it's not going to be possible to sustain supplies to Ukraine in 2024 on anything like the level that we have seen up to now. So with the Russian industrial system, military industrial complex, cranking up, increasing production, Ukraine's supplies are going to start to fall away. Not because lack of money or even lack of political will, but because the physical constraints cannot be overcome. So that's one reason why they're nervous that if this offensive doesn't succeed, and the only chance it will succeed is you know the, the improbable things that you said, Gerasimov rebelling, the Russians panicking, something like that happening. So it all, it all hinges on hope. It's all hope for the success of this counteroffensive. The New York Times talks about immense risks. I mean, it's gambling. They are now gambling with the lives of men and with the future of Ukraine. Because they have nothing else. That's, that's all they can do. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. What are your thoughts on the, uh, the fire sale that uh, is taking place in Ukraine, the selling of, of all their assets, as well as Naftogaz? Uh, coming up to to sign a, a gas agreement with Halliburton and and she, uh, Chevron, Exxon Mobil. And anyway, my point is, it seems like there's a rush all of a sudden with uh, with Collective West companies and Ukraine to start buying assets, selling assets, make gas deals in the middle of uh, of this conflict and right before this uh, spring counteroffensive. Now, some people. Have come uh, have come up with the theory that perhaps Ukraine would like these Western companies in Ukraine to provide uh, some sort of um, of reason for for NATO or the U.S. to to put boots on the ground in Ukraine and become involved in the war. I my thinking is that this is this is a sign of of the Alensky regime as well as as the globalist uh, companies the. The neoliberal uh, companies kind of saying, you know, let's uh, let's grab whatever we can now and and let's let's get out of here because the political article references Afghanistan quite a lot, and 
I don't think they're referencing Afghanistan by accident. I'm, I'm thinking that they're expecting some sort of collapse, some sort of president leaving the country with suitcases full of money. And my thinking is that these companies are saying, you know, let's buy up assets. Let's create insurance policies against these deals and we'll make profits one way or another. You are absolutely right. And I completely agree with you. This isn't some long term, deeply laid plan to lock the West in. That's an absurd idea. I mean, you know, it's not a lack of political will in the West, as I said, to support Ukraine. That's the problem. It's means. And the people around Zelensky and undoubtedly Zelensky himself understand this by now. So they know that the writing is on the wall on the wall. So make as much as you can, as fast as you can, get it all out before you yourself go. That this is what this is about. And that's why there is this fire cell going on. And as you absolutely rightly say, the companies, the, the Western companies that you know closing in. They can also undoubtedly see that the writing is on the wall, but they're getting a backstop. They know that there will be a backstop either from the insurance companies or more probably from the U.S. government. I mean, always remember that the U.S. taxpayer, you know, there might be there might be all kinds of guarantees being given from the Biden administration. Remember, the Biden administration, the Biden team giving those guarantees. It's not their money that's at stake. It's the U.S. taxpayers' money. That's the state. So they, they, they are pushing these companies in. The companies will also take whatever they can out as fast as they can, and everybody will go. The only people who will be the losers are the U.S. taxpayers and the European taxpayers who have been funding this adventure ever since it first started, not a year ago, eight years ago, back in 2014, and even before, they've been funding this laundry exactly as they funded it in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, they're the losers. These people are the winners, at least financially. They know it. They're putting as much, getting as much money out now before, the, before as I said, the curtain drops. Yeah, all right. Uh, final thoughts on uh, Lavrov's speech at the, uh, at the UN at the Security Council, for which Russia is chairing the session there, yeah, the know, president I know, I know, I know. Of, the, uh, of the Security Council. Your thoughts on his speech, because he kind of said what many things that, that you just said right now, which is this thing goes back eight years and, you know, it's, it, it's been one, one uh, lie after another, one deceit after another, from the Minsk agreements to, to everything else that, uh, that the collective us has been up to, not only in Ukraine, but, but around the world. And, Lavrov mentioned Yugoslavia, he mentioned uh, Serbia, Libya, Iraq, uh, Nord Stream, Joseph Burrell, the garden, the jungle. I mean, he talked about all these things. What, what was your Absol take on his Absolutely. Uh, and of course, it, it, it was an extremely well put together, very effective speech, which will gain a lot of traction around the world. Of course, in the West, we don't read it. Nobody in the way, there's no summary of it in any British newspaper. There's no discussion of its contents on the BBC, for example, here in, in Britain. People are not going to be familiar with all the points and comments that Lavrov made. Instead, if you're talking about Britain, all you, the only thing you read about is the indignation of the Western powers, who are, of course, 
made out to be the majority in the United Nations, even though they're not, not by any stretch, but their indignation that Russia is chairing this Security Council meeting at all. This completely false issue has been made into, you know, the, the key issue in this, in, this, um, in this affair. But, of course, Lavrov isn't addressing the West. He is addressing the global community of nations outside the West, and he's winning. The Russians are winning. In fact, they have not not winning this argument. They have won this argument. People around the world, governments around the world, know, know all about the Minsk Agreement. They know all about the promises that were given to Russia way back in, 19, in 1989, in 1990, 1991. NATO won't expand an inch east. They know all about the arms control that were negotiated at roughly that time. They know all of these things. And, you know, you had people like Ambassador Varma from India, who was, as we interviewed Glenn Deason and I for the Duran. And he said, you know, this was clearly provoked, this war was clearly provoked. Clearly the Russians are defending their positions here. And Lavrov... Put it well, he is addressing a global audience. The United Nations is not to be overlooked because that's where all the countries have ambassadors. So, you know, it's an important sounding board for these things. It's also an important place for conducting diplomatic contacts. He's going to be meeting all kinds of people whilst he's in New York, uh, all the you know, representatives of many countries he's going to have discussions with. But what he is saying is finding a very, very receptive audience. Most of the world quietly agrees with him. Yeah. 19 countries want to join BRICS. Well, 19 countries, well, that's, what does that tell you? And the Chinese ambassador to France has gone even further. He's questioned whether some of these constituent republics of the former Soviet Union have any real legitimacy as nations at all, which provoked outrage of course in the west but you know i'm sure he's that ambassador speaks for what a lot of chinese officials are thinking and for what a lot of people around the world are probably thinking too yeah all right we will end it there the duran.locals.com we are at rumble odyssey big shoot telegram and rockfin and go to the duran shop 10 percent off use the code good day take care